Thank you for listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. This is an extra special live episode. We share the stories of people with a love for Vietnam. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host. I've lived in Vietnam since 2016 and first started this podcast to know more about the interesting people that lived in Saigon, a crazy, bustling, energetic city. As the show has grown over the years, we now talk to people from Saigon and all over the world who have a Vietnam story to share. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Lee Jones, a fellow Scot who has lived in Vietnam since 2017 and Singapore before that since 2010. Dr. Jones is a prominent vaccine advocate in the Saigon community and has a PhD in immunology with years of experience in researching infectious diseases. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Jones. Lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting me. You are very, very welcome. Now, obviously, so elephant in the room, if you can call it an elephant, we're both from Glasgow. And I've already had a comment from my wife that I'm already sounding more Scottish. And it is impossible not to do it. So how I thought we'd start is, I don't know if you get this. I imagine that you do. So... Being Scottish overseas, I've not lived actually in Scotland since 2001. I've lived all over the world. And during that time, I meet two different types of people, often at the same time or one after them. One of them will say to me, oh, you're from Scotland? Oh, you've got such a strong accent. And I'll be like, really, do I? And then I'll meet the next person. And they'll be like, oh, you're from Scotland? You've got a really soft accent. I can understand everything you're saying. I'm like, well, tell that to the last person. Do you get a similar thing as well? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I mean, my accent, as yours will have, clearly sort of softens the longer that you're away. You've been away a little bit longer than me. The whole, most people from Asia, when they first hear my accent, kind of go, oh, because it sounds new. But mostly they roll with it and it's fine. It just needs their ear in place. But most people that make comments are, other Europeans, um, Americans, Australians, those are the ones that tend to be a bit more either, you know, your accent's really strong, like you say, or maybe someone that spent time in Scotland has said, oh, like, I actually understand you. Yeah. And I never know how to deal with that. Like, part of me is, a, like, actually the biggest part of me is offended. I, I think a lot of the time it's not a fast accent. People need to speed up their listening. That's what I always say. Listen. Listen faster. Don't ask me to speak slower. But obviously, naturally, the longer you're away, it adapts sometimes. And by the time I go home, the sheer, and you know, I'm sure you're the same, that it, that it gets stronger. I don't mind those questions so much. What I don't like is when someone imitates my accent. So for the love of God, anyone on this podcast, if you think it's funny to imitate someone's accent, I guarantee you've heard it all before in your accent's garbage. I said, don't. <laughs> <laughs> So a couple of things to pick up on there. So first of all, I didn't want to pick on one set of people, but let's be honest, it is mostly Americans that say that. And I have lived in America. And so we'll often be Americans that are like, oh my God, your accent's so strong. And I will normally follow up with, have you ever been to Scotland? Now, even if it's Australian, Kiwi, American, if they tell me that my accent is strong, I almost know that they have never been to Scotland. And they will not be like, oh, you know, I've never been in. But like, yeah, no, my, my accent is not strong. 
if they say to me, oh, you've got a really soft accent, I can understand you. I'll be like, oh, have you been to Scotland? They'll be like, yeah, yeah, I went there. I was there. I couldn't understand a thing that anybody said. And I'm like, okay, so that's normally, that's normally the main difference. In terms of imitating, you're, you're totally right. So when I first left Scotland, I went to work in a summer camp in America. And my superior at the time would always imitate what I said to him. And it got to the point where I'd be trying to tell him something serious, like, you know, this camper's being bullied. And he'd be like, oh, this camper's being bullied. And I'd be like, no, like, Scott, like, yeah. So eventually it got to the point where I was like, can you stop that? Like, it's just really annoying. I'm trying to tell you about something serious. And he was so nice. He was like so apologetic. He's like, you know what? I'm sorry. I just I really love your accent. And I'm, I'm trying to do it. And as he said, I was like, you know what? There's a Swedish guy here I'm friends with. And he says something. And then I imitate his like Swedish accent. So we all do it. But it does get when he was doing it like all the time. And it's like, okay, now you need to stop. Yeah, it's just a bugbear of mine. I'm like, stop it. Yeah, like especially if you just meet someone when you're friends with someone you get you, you totally get that allowance that you can you know I, I do my friends accents in Singapore all the time they do mine back to me that's fine you've earned that right <laughs> not when I just meet you can you just can you just not yeah. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be a compliment but um the thing is as well as it usually sounds Indian as well more than anything else. <laughs> or anything but Scottish or just yeah. A really like imitating Shrek purely. <laughs> oh, Shrek is pretty good though, because he might see this is what I tell people. Mike Myers is the only person I know of that can actually do a good Scottish accent. But that's it's because his parents were Scottish, so he grew up with it. So he's just imitating his parents. It's not like he's just making it up. But this is what I had an idea for the start of the podcast, right? Which is an absolutely terrible idea. So before I, I tell you the idea. But anyone who's listening to this podcast, not live, there is a button that you can skip ahead 30 seconds. And if you want to just keep skipping that button ahead until we finish this, then that's absolutely fine. So what I want us to do is, again, addressing the elephant in the room, let's just talk normal. Like I'm going to talk in my normal Scottish accent. I've been away for about 20 years, but even as my wife just picked out and noticed, as soon as I talk to another Scottish person, it comes back immediately. And over the years, I often get people say to me, oh, let us hear your real Scottish accent. And I can't do it. Like when I'm around other people, I've been away for so long, I can't just turn that on. But as soon as I'm with another Scottish person, it comes back immediately. So how do let's just, we're going to go full Scottish. And I thought the way to get into it is we're going to bring up, so we, are, we said that we're both Scottish. We're actually not just both Scottish. We're Glaswegian, which is, its own type of Scottishness. So what I thought we could do is educate anyone that's listening to the podcast listeners about some brilliant Scottish words because my wife and I have been together for 10 years and still nearly every week, I just randomly think of a word that comes from my childhood and I say it and then she's like, what does that mean? And I'm like, now tell you when I found, I remember this is in relation to my jersey, so I'm wearing, as anyone is watching, um, we'll be on YouTube as well. This is one of the most hideous, disgusting soccer jerseys. Foot, sorry, see, I lived in America. I call it soccer. Soccer, football jerseys in the world. But this is from uh, Lee and Earl's team. Can I call you Lee or Dr. Jones? What would you prefer? You can do Lee. Let's do I Lee. Call you Lee. Okay. <laughs> um, this is our football team, Glasgow Rangers, and it's the most hideous top ever, but I've worn it in honor of Lee tonight. 
But I was texting my best friend back home the other day. I said to him, well, mate, it's a pure dillion. Pure dillion? Oh, yeah. And he responded, he's like, I've not heard that since high school. And I was like, I don't think I've <laughs> used it since high school, but just ran, like when I'm talking, even by text message, when I'm talking to my Scottish friends, these random Scottish words, I was like, mate, it's a pure dillion. So that, that was my most recent one. The other one is my personal favorite is that's pure bowfin. Bowfin's good. Bowfin's good. Honking. Reaching. Bowfin's good though. That's a good one. It's a good one, right? That's pure bowfin. Yeah. And you've got to put pure before it. If you're from Glasgow, yeah. it has to have pure before it, right? At a swear word. So we'll probably go with pure. That's pure. So we'll try, we'll try, we'd normally try and avoid the swearing. Well, so... We'll, we'll, we can continue on our conversation, but just drop any pretenses. And I'm even, I'm trying hard now to try and speak in a Scottish accent because it is difficult because I'm just, especially doing a podcast and I do even now voiceover work and things like this. Like I have to speak so Americanized. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Well, I have, I do um, training with uh, Vietnamese students, Thai students, Indonesian students. So yes, I know exactly what you mean. It's you're very still, we can, You're still speaking <laughs> posh. Come on, you got well, we to that poshness. You got to you got to sound pure Glaswegian, man. Right, we need to talk about something that's more Glaswegian, then. So we need to talk about football. Yeah, right, let's talk about football. Well, I'm having a beer. We don't normally, as I told you before the podcast, I don't normally drink in podcast because I lose my track of mind and things like this. But with the live podcast, I change it up a wee bit. So I'll normally have a wee beer when I'm doing when I'm doing the podcast. A wee swallow. A wee swallow. Right. But, but you don't you don't get steaming, you know. You don't get steaming. You don't go that well, far. Eh? Let's see. Well, let's see by the end of the podcast. Depends how long we talk for. You know, I might get a bit steaming, but I'll, yeah, I do enjoy a wee swally every now and again. I yeah, a wee a wee beer with a fat bar. That's that's what you want. That that makes a weekend. That a wee beer with a fat bar after a hard week at work. Hard week at <laughs> you make it sound like we're working doing the mines or something like that. I mean, was grafting, <laughs> grafting doing the mines. And anyway, I go to Footland on the weekend. Eh? You know, what's some other, what's some other pure, pure dillionaire like Glasgow words you can think of? Because that's what I said. Yeah. Even being for Glasgow, right? We use different words like for Edinburgh. Like when I read Train Spotting, they used the word Raj all the time. Like, oh, he's a Raj. I had to look Brilliant. it up. I was like, I didn't know what it meant. I was like, I'm from Glasgow, I'm from Glasgow, and I don't know what Raj means. So I had to look that up. What if we even in Glasgow between North and South? I noticed when I went to uni, there was a little bit of a difference. Like I'd friend, I'm from the North of Glasgow, and then I had friends for the South, and so they would just use little words, and I was like, ah, oh, seems a wee bit different to to Bishop. Yeah. Brilliant. To Bishop Briggs. I we were just talking about <laughs> well, like Spam Valley. <laughs> You're from Spam Spam Valley and I'm from Scumbernold, according to Mother Half. So. <laughs> and he's Felith, is he not? He's Felith, he's a Lether, that's it. We have that. We've we've got a, a cross cultural marriage. It's like Romeo and Juliet. He's a he's a he's a Lether that went to that went to Catholic school and supports Hibs and you know, I'm a Rangers that went to Protestant skill and you know, hey, 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 multi, multi denominational school. Sorry, was it? Was sorry, it, not, I call it? No, it's non denominational. Non denominational, somebody that's it. No, no, there's no such thing as a Protestant school. It's just they, they Catholics that separate themselves, and we went to a non denominational school. <laughs> we have these discussions all the time. It's hilarious. By the way, both completely atheists. So, <laughs> well, well, me really don't well. want to get into, yeah, yeah. really don't want to get into the religion cauldron that is that is Glasgow, but it is part of you know us growing up and 
and you know the, the chat and your your pals down the road going to a separate school and you know it's it's just kind of the way some of it was but aye but going back to Bowfin I like the word Glaikit Glaikit's one of my favorite. he's pure Glaikit everybody must have pure yeah. before it aye he's pure Glaikit look at the neck of him he's pure Glaikit he's a He's just, he's just a walloper, walloper. That's a, walloper. That's a good one. He's a walloper. He's a pure walloper. It's going to be... A zoomer. It's going to be... He's an zoomer. A zoomer? And that was before we had Zoom. I don't know what Zoom... I've never heard that one, a zoomer. A zoomer, that might, that might have been a Cumbernauld one then, a Scumberman. Yeah, see, yeah, it's all different by region or even town. Well, let, let's wind it back a bit because now we've lost anyone who's listening, they've... they've They've skipped forward about five times and they're like, I still can't understand what they're saying. But this is a good example of how you, we are, I am, I can feel myself speeding up so much. Do you know the, the funniest thing was last time I went back to Scotland because I'm so used to speaking slowly and properly and, and enunciating my words and pronouncing everything, which I had to learn going to America was kind of where I learned to do that because the, the example I always tell people was when I was in America, I said to this guy, oh, is that your towel? And he was like, what? I was like, is that your towel, mate? Is that, is that my turtle? And I had to pick it up and be like, is this your towel? And he's like, oh, towel. And I always remember that moment of being like, oh, he fucking pronounces that differently to me. Like he's, I, then that's when I heard it. I was like, I just said towel. And he towel. did towel he pronounced those last two letters and i'm like in glasgow if you go to someone is that your towel they'd be like is that your towel they'd be like aye that's my towel mate I'm like cheers you know so that was when i started to realize i'm not pronouncing these words properly essentially i'm not saying all the vowels and even when i went to university even though i'm from spam valley which for anyone listening is I, I lived in a posh area, but my family had no money is essentially what Spam Valley means. So we had to eat Spam for dinner, which is not entirely true, but it's not far from the truth. And um, Spam's expensive here. That, that doesn't even work. It's Vietnam. I don't, know, I, don't, I, I don't eat Spam, so I couldn't tell you the price of it. It's too expensive. <laughs> but you'll never believe this. So I, I'm not, I'm from, I don't even know if you call them working class. Like they're not working down the mines. They're all in teachers, policemen supermarkets you know they're, so they're not uh blue white collar blue collar do you call it the american term they're not like blue collar but they're also not like white collar i guess somewhere in between so but my point is i didn't come from a posh family but i also didn't come from like a council family you know what i mean to try and think of it, the way to put it but when i went to university right I had people in my course from glasgow tell me that i had the strongest scottish accent or Glaswegian accent they'd ever heard. Did you go to the University of Glasgow at an interest? I went mean, the same as you, Strathclyde. Strathclyde? Yeah, I went to Strathclyde. I know. So, I, so these people, they were from like Pollock and from Clarkston and from the south of Glasgow, which I, I wasn't very familiar with. And they, I swear, I remember it, my first year of uni, they were like, you know, you got the strongest Glaswegian accent. And I was like, I even but this is even before I'd left to go to America. I was like, I don't understand that because my family were not like fucking pure Neds, man. Like to me, that's a Scottish accent, like a pure Glaswegian accent, like all these wee bampots at Comfy Poso and Balonok and all that. Like that's a pure Glasgow oh, accent. Lord, no. I've not heard that name in ages. Not just played. 
because I lived in Bishop Briggs, we had to get in the bus to town. You had to go through all the council right. areas. So we would go through Ochenairn and Springburn and Balmullock and Balonock and all of these kind of like rougher areas. And so my school was in that area where it would be a mixture of the kind of Spam Valley, posher kids. The people that lived in Bishop Briggs, they weren't posh. All their parents had like, they were all mechanics and you know, they weren't like doctors and law. I didn't know anyone whose dad was a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or anything like that. You know, they were all pretty working class jobs. But then at my school also had, was in the catchment area that we had the rough kids from the rough areas, the council areas come as well. So we had a big, so that's why I was really confused when I went to university and they were like, oh, you got a really strong accent. I was like, really? Hopefully your school must have been way posher than mine then. You must have been a weird class because I know that we spoke about, you know, going to Strathclyde and stuff and and we both did science degrees, right? You did sports science. Were you yeah. up at Jordan Hill? Yeah, I was at Jordan Hill, yeah. Ah, okay. Maybe maybe that's the difference when I was down at um, the sort of bioscience campus in the yep. city centre. And I don't remember anyone saying to I mean, my mates, most of them were from the south side, actually. So maybe I had a more strong accent than they did. <laughs> they were... They were yeah, they were mainly from the south side, and but the nicer parts of the south side. And I was coming from Cumbernauld on the bus every day. Um, yeah, so I mean, I was pretty similar. Yeah, the bus from from Bishop Briggs, yeah, and I'd take like two buses and a twenty minute walk, and they were all yeah. pretty like not again. None of them was super rich, or but they were all kind of came from Clarkston and from nice families and things like this. And so, yeah. but that, that shocked me. And then, so my accent has a. Uh, I take a lot of pride when, when somebody tells me, oh, you've got a really nice accent, I can understand you. And I often get confused for Edinburgh, which most Glaswegians would be horrified at. But I actually really like that. When someone thinks I'm from Edinburgh, I'm like, yeah, no, thank you. you know. <laughs> and the funny thing is, if they actually went to Edinburgh and listened to, to pro, like, you know, proper like, council estate Edinburgh, they would be like, what? Because <laughs> that's the thing. There's this assumption, isn't it, that you know Edinburgh means posh, and it's yeah. and it's entirely a fair one. It just means that when you go to the city centre, you hear far more sort of different accents because it is more of a tourist city in Glasgow in terms of the city centre. So you are see- hearing that sort of melting pot, lots of different accents. But in actual fact, if you were to go out to Crate Miller or something like that, then you're going to hear like a strong, full-on Edinburgh accent that most people would be utterly baffled by. And you hear people watching Trainspotting with the subtitles on, you know? Oh, yeah, I mean, my wife clearly the subtitles on, like, absolutely. It's it's definitely a challenge. But what I've realised over the years, so accents are one, and this might be an outlandish statement, but I don't think it is. They're socioeconomic, right? So if you are from, no matter which country or which city you're from in the world, if you are from a higher socioeconomic status, you have a nicer, maybe not nicer, but I think nicer, more understandable accent. If you're from a lower socioeconomic status, your accent is normally rougher, uh, more regional, more difficult to understand. And that even applies like my wife's from Texas. <laughs> she was probably laughing. I can't see her, but she doesn't have that Texas twang. And from when we first met and she still gets it from people like, you're disappointed, like, oh, you're not from, y'all not from around here or whatever that kind of, whatever that terrible twang is that I just did. But she's like, I'm from the city. I'm from Dallas. Like, I'm not from the countryside. I'm not like a country bumpkin. Like, and even if you're from Yorkshire, you know, or Birmingham or wherever you are, if you're, if you've got a really strong regional accent, then it's going to be, it's going to have a thicker accent, you know? 
See, I, 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 I love accents. So I'm kind of like, I, you know, I've got mates that have got, well, probably they would argue as well that their Birmingham accents disappearing and, you know, people from, you know, Manchester and I love it. I think it's great. And in Vietnam, they have those, you know, really strong regional accents as well. And I, I just find that fascinating. And I think it's really nice to have a little bit of a badge of where you're from. And I kind of hope that I've not lost my accent too much. That would actually make me quite sad. You know, as I mean, much as I would have That's good to know. That's and good well, to know. Obviously, as I said, my wife loves it when I talk about her all the time and she's right here. But first time we met you last week in Union Jacks and she's obviously very attuned to the Scottish accent after 10 years in being home and she's like, she's not lost her accent. Is the first thing she said. I, you wouldn't, you wouldn't agree with that if you came and met my family. I'm sure you'd be like, oh my lord, like you know, they're they've got a far stronger accent than I do. But it's brilliant, you know, and and but it's not even been since leaving Scotland that you have to sort of think about, you know, how you're pronouncing words and slowing down. Is in in science we have to present to international audiences all the time. So it's not like, you know, I just left Scotland and then yeah. I had to think about it. I had to think about it anyway. I had to think about it when I was going to, you know, give a presentation in Europe or the US or, you know, so, I mean, it's, it is something that you think about more regularly here, but it's kind of already in there the minute that you're in a work environment or certainly in the environment that I work in, that it kind of becomes second nature. So... I don't know. I mean, maybe, yeah, I worked in Edinburgh for years as well. So that maybe it's affected that somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I heard you do that talk recently that you did with Ishmik, and again, my wife and I we were watching it together, and we both looked at each other and just laughed when you said, are oh, the new variant? Variant? That's variant. what it's called. No, but Very. Any, no. Word, any word with an R in the middle <laughs> as a Scottish person, you're fucked. So, exactly. Variant. <laughs> <laughs> I love well, I love a strong rule of an R. And the thing is, it's not just Scots that rule their R's. The Dutch do it. You know, Indians do it. You know, we, we should be proud of that rolling our murder. There's been a murder. You know? Oh, I've had that so many times over the years. See, see, the one I get is uh, squirmy worms. Squirmy worms. Squirmy worms. Or uh, what's the one? Even my sister messaged me this one the other day. Or a purple burglar. Purple burglar. <laughs> purple. Purple burglar alarm. Purple burglar alarm, yeah. yeah. That's My cousin point. can't say that. She's Scottish and we were on a group chat and she just couldn't say it. It was just like blah, 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 blah. Purple burglar alarm. Apparently it's really everyone, everyone has those phrases no matter where they're from, they asked for. Like, I've got mates in Northern Ireland and they're when I say power shower, car shower. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Cow now, cow. But yeah, exactly. So I think we all sort of have those um, typical um, words or phrases that really brings the accent out and showcases it to its strongest. <laughs> so let's then talk about, so me and you, we both studied at Strathclyde. We, for all we know, we've never met. We, we could have met one dark, we, we graduated a year apart. It's probably very likely we've yeah who knows who knows but we graduated similar times so you studied uh, what was your undergraduate my undergraduate was microbiology and immunology so it was a joint honors oh show off show and all so part of the reason I went to Strathclyde is because it did joint honors I did get accepted to Glasgow but I wanted to join and they only did single honors at the time so Mm. yeah there you go so you so then 
you've been you were in Singapore then 2000 and since 2010. So give us a bit of a background then. So how did you go from Strathclyde University, best university in the world? I don't know if it is. I'm just saying that because I went there. It's not, but it is. No, it's a good one. It is a good one though, right? It is, it is one of the yeah, top. Really so yeah, how did, tell us your story, how you ended up in Vietnam. Yeah, so I, I did my undergraduate and I loved science. And sort of during my last year, one of my lecturers approached me and said that they had this studentship over the summer to work in the lab. Um, fully funded so I would get paid to basically come in and do experiments and be like a real scientist rather than you know cutting up a sheep's lung and listening to lectures so I kind of fancied that idea and you know took it and ran with it and you know had a great time in the lab over the summer I was working on parasitic disease called Toxoplasma gondii which many people wouldn't have heard of but from trees that's the one I was going to say. There's a train spotting link. So if anyone's seen train spotting and remembers that Tommy died after so plasmosis, right? Yeah. That's right. He died of toxoplasmosis. So I, I worked on that. Actually on DNA vaccination for toxoplasmosis, um, which sort of brings us nicely onto where we're at, kind of where we're at now, vaccines. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I worked on that. I had a great time over the summer and my supervisors said, you know, would you be interested in doing a PhD? And I thought, yeah, that sounds good because then I don't need to start working straight away. And I can just be being a... It wasn't a plan. It was, it was something that I hadn't really thought about strongly until the option was there. And was lucky enough to get a quite, quite good scholarship. So I got a Carnegie scholarship. So that funded me for three years. And yeah, I had a great time lab, kept working on toxoplasma, but looking at hormones. So... Without getting too sciencey, um, toxoplasma can be a problem for pregnant ladies if they get it for the first time when they're pregnant. So it can be quite a nasty infection that crosses across into the placenta. So I was looking at the hormone effects of sort of pregnancy associated hormones on toxoplasma gondii. So I did that for three years. And actually, what I'm using as a balance for my laptop is my PhD thesis. Ah, so <laughs> and ironically, ironically I, can, I can maybe quickly show you <laughs> this. Wow, you wrote here. that. Yeah, we can't really see it with the background. Oh. was my life for three years. So yeah, I did that. And then I decided to take a change from that particular subject. And I moved courses across to Edinburgh. And I worked at the Scottish Agricultural College for three years on worm infections, which was a lot of fun because, I, so I did that in a small animal model, but I also related to some agricultural work. So I got to play the sheep in a field. So it was quite good fun being a bit Certainly of a from Aberdeen now. Yeah, yeah. You know, dealing with sheep in a field with my leopard print wellies, my big sunnies on. You know, the young farmers hated me. They were like, who is this idiot townie? Had a great time. It was great. So I was there for three years. Took a short break to work in scientific writing for a while. So that was probably the only time I was ever properly in a corporate environment. So helping write up um, articles and create communication materials for pharma and things. Very short time. And then moved to Singapore in 2010. Took up a job in a really good, well-run, well-funded Singaporean government laboratory. So it was like walking from these dodgy, no offence to the university university that I worked in for years. I loved it. But really old school lab, you yeah. know, a little bit damp, a little bit smelly. <laughs> and then we moved to 
what was like working in a spaceship is the best way I could describe working at A-Star in Singapore. Like, Ansi's machines, just incredible. Had a great time there. First in a lab working on immunology in the gut. So particularly, the, you know, the immune responses that happen in your gut are really interesting. So worked on that for about four years, four and a half years. Then decided I was kind of fed up doing basic science and wanted to do something more applicable in humans and moved to a big lab that focused on everything immunology, but helping out with clinical trials. So um, after my first lab in Singapore, I moved to a slightly different lab that was more focused on human um, studies, so more clinical studies, some work on some clinical trials in influenza vaccination, some trials on cancer immunotherapies. And what else did I do? Oh, I'd done a really fun project with Procter & Gamble on hair biology, which was a lot of fun. I got to go over to Cincinnati and present to all the big wigs over there. And yeah, it was great. And I worked there for a number of years. And um, then sort of personal life reasons and a number of things, I decided it was time to move on from Singapore and at that time Okru was well actually wind that back the reason I found out about Okru another Scottish connection I was drinking in the sports bar Mm. in Italian (laughs) in District 2 I'm sure you'll be aware of watching football as you do football and um, started chatting with this Scottish guy that um, my partner knew he played football with him for a while and his dad was there and his dad was a you know, little bit of an older guy. I'm sure you wouldn't mind me saying this really interesting guy. And we were chatting about, you know, what I would want to do if I came over here to live. Because at the time I was commuting back and fo- forward to see my partner from, uh, from Singapore. And um, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an immunologist by trade. I'm a research scientist. And he said, no, you're not. And I thought, what a weird thing <laughs> to say. Weird fucking response, right? But um, again, it's a, a guy not quite Glaswegian, Mr. Campbell, and he's a bit of a legend out here. Um, he's been with Okru pretty much since the start, and he's the head of microbiology. He only just retired this oh, year okay. during lockdown. I, I swear he retired during lockdown, so he didn't need to do a going away party. <laughs> I think he changed the whole thing. A proper grumpy yeah. score. I, I miss him in the office. You know when you walk past one, someone and say, all right, Jim, how are you? Uh, <laughs> but I love it's just brilliant. It's just so Scottish. It was brilliant. Anyway, he introduced me to the guys at crew at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit, where I now work. And I've worked there since 2017. And an opportunity came up as head of training. And at the time, I'd considered taking, you know, I, was, I enjoyed the lab, but I felt it was time for a change. And I've got a big gob and I like working with people. And I thought I was kind of not using my, I will call them communication skills. Let's go with that. Uh, I didn't think I was using them enough and I would really like to have a sort of sideways move, still working in science, but doing something a bit different. So I took on that role in 2017 as part-time role. That's now blossomed into a full-time role between Okru here in Vietnam. We also have a site in Indonesia. And then the sister unit in Thailand contacts me and said, hey, we'd love it if you could do the same thing for us. So as of Next one, I will be starting a slightly new role in a fancy new title of Regional Academic Training Leader for Okru and Moru. But someone has kindly pointed out that means I'm the rat leader. Uh, so I, 
I'm going to rename myself as the, the Pied Piper of PhD students uh. because I think that's um, but yeah, that's why I'm here and, and most of what I do now is managing a huge PhD programme across Southeast Asia. We have just under 100 students, clinicians, pharmacists, vets, social scientists, you name it. And they're all doing amazing work on a number of different infectious diseases, all of them working on infectious diseases of relevance to the region. So at the moment, there's a lot of COVID work, but we also have dengue tuberculosis, um, malaria, TB, uh, sorry, I said tuberculosis, didn't I? HIV. And I know, I know I feel guilty about missing people out and I'm sure I've missed out lots. <laughs> but we have lots of um, different research teams there doing amazing things. And it's, it really is it's a cracking place to work. And the Thailand unit's amazing as well. So Awesome. Yeah. Not bad for a wee, yeah, a wee girl for Cumberland all day. It's all right, eh? A wee last day from- Number nasty. I've done. I've done okay. I've got an Oxford University contract. That's hilarious. <laughs> someone, I'm sorry, but someone from Abramhow High School, which is now knocked down. Little fun fact: Abramhow High School was the high school in Gregory's Girl. So if you remember that movie, that's where that was you're, filmed. Now no longer exists. You're really exists. the same age, right? You're but even a bit younger than me. I only just know that movie. Anyone who's not from Scotland and listening to this has no idea what the fuck Gregory Girls is, and you don't even need to go find out. It's not even that worth to go and find out what it is. It's like the American Pie existed. It was the original coming of age sort of story of a really geeky, skinny young Scottish yeah. guy. But it's yeah, I mean, it's what what sort of the American Pie or the future coming but not as not as like. rapey right and not as like well it's not creepy yeah. it was more innocent yeah, yeah, it's really a, it does open with a scene of them looking in a nurse's college and a, and a woman's taking her top off so oh, there it's not you go then. See, I'm, 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 I don't even know if I have seen it and if I have it would have been a very 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 long time ago but yeah Watch I guess it's probably pretty difficult to find a movie from back then that's not a bit rapey and creepy and things like that so um but one of the one of the quotes from the from the movie is women weren't designed to play football. So we're designed to play football, they put their tits somewhere else. <laughs> so there you go. A bit of football in Scotland. It's the best combination. <laughs> no, I wanted to just go back way to the beginning of what you just said. Everything you said there is unbelievable and I want to delve into it more. And so I, I don't want to detract from all that amazingness. Man, I do. The Scottish accent makes me laugh. As someone from Scotland, right? You you never believe it. Like even when I talk to my mum, I just start laughing sometimes. And I think it's because my wife is American, so I'm really attuned to it. And then one of the first things you said was, "We do experiments," and I just nearly pissed myself laughing. Like any word with R in the middle, as a Scottish person, is just just makes me laugh so much. I'm glad that we're bringing each other joy with something that we've been brought up with. (laughs) (laughs) Experiment. Well, this is another thing we have in connection. So this is, we've only just uh, met each other recently. And so we we are both Rangers fans. We both studied at the University of Strathclyde. I actually worked at an immunotherapy cancer research lab in New Zealand. There we go. There you go. So my background is in fundraising for for not for profits and charities. And I got a job in New Zealand. i you may or may not have heard of it. It's a very small independent research institute called the Maligan Institute of Research. That's oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're, so their whole focus is on immunotherapy, which so at the time I, I knew nothing about and I was approached for this job again on the fundraising. Uh, I accepted the job and so I got to learn all about immunotherapy and it was just so fascinating because, you know, 
I'm not a scientist at your level even close, but I'm also not an idiot. So I could, I was able to like understand the concepts because so because I was on the fundraising team and I'm basically asking people for money, I had to understand the science to be able to, because the thing is as well, you can, as you probably know, it's different to grant writing where you have to explain it in a scientific way. I have to explain it to the lay person mm-hmm. on an emotional level why you should support. So you're not explaining about, we're like, a huge challenge like public en- and it brings you into public engagement as well at trying to explain quite complex and um, topics and issues and make them accessible but actually make someone care about yeah. them is a real it's a skill yeah I mean, so that's, i'm really proud of myself because it is yeah it's a skill in itself so i had to understand like what the flow cytometry machine did I used to do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I used to run it off. I'm now feeling nostalgic for flow yeah, cytometry. Right. Well, if we hadn't lost half the audience, we've now lost them already. Now we're getting into flow cytometry. <laughs> but I will make sure to send this to uh, the team, the people I'm still friends with at the Melligan Institute. But yeah, so I had to understand what the flow cytometry machine did. and But then also be able to take, I would do tools of the Institute for potential donors and corporate sponsors and trying to be able to explain that in a way that is understandable and whatnot. But yeah. I found it I found it so, so fascinating and really, really interesting. And it actually brings us around to something that we're obviously going to talk about. And, and we we talked about this before. So I have I just done a, I've just done a podcast recently with a the comeback. And I'm starting to be more vocal in the fact that I used to be a massive conspiracy theorist about 10 years ago and deep, deep down the rabbit hole. And at the point where I got this job at the Maligan Institute, I was coming out the rabbit hole. I was, but I was still had like, I was still a bit skeptical. And for me, I would, I don't know if I would say it was an anti-vaxxer, but I was definitely had anti-vax sentiments based on one YouTube video. I can look back now and be like, yeah, it was literally like one YouTube video that I didn't fact check. I didn't see who made it. I didn't like look into this YouTube video told me there was mercury in the vaccines. And then that was it. All right. We're not getting. That's it, done, right? And I remember sitting down with this scientist, Dr. Lindsay Anslet, who's just an incredible, credible lady, trying to cure brain cancer through immunology and immunotherapy. And I was trying to understand more about the Institute. And I didn't want to, you know, come in. I'd already accepted the job. And even accepting the job, I had to discuss it with my wife. And I'm like, they do like, you know, vaccine therapy and immunotherapy. And, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I don't. But, you know, it was kind of like, I'm not just going to take a job if I, if I disagree with it. But I, I looked into it. Something, yeah. so I looked into it and I was like, you know, it's fine. So anyway, one of my first meetings with her, I definitely wasn't like, well, you know, I don't believe in this, but I... I remember seeing something along the lines of, oh, you know, you hear a lot about this or, you know, people, you hear that people say this and whatnot. And I can't even remember what it was exactly that she said, but she just shot it down so like effortlessly that it literally just made me do a 180 like there and then like, oh, Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. And we can get into the, the whole conspiracy side of things, but one of the things that people always talk about is, you know, big pharma and they're all connected and they're all, the, the other one that when I did the podcast recently with Connor Kelly, he'd never heard of the thing that like cancer is, that big pharmaceutical companies don't want to cure cancer because there's more money in, in treating cancer than curing it. And he'd never heard of this. And I was like, oh yeah, no, that, that's like a, 
That was a thing 10 years ago, and I'm sure it's still a thing today. But then going to work at this independent research institute was just like, this is just obviously not a thing. This is this like tiny little research institute all the way in New Zealand that is literally, they'd cured skin cancer with their immunotherapy treatment. They'd done clinical trials. They'd got up to phase one trials. This girl, Dr. Anslet, had told me about how they basically cured brain cancer in mice, which is obviously not... uh, the same as phase one or whatever, but in the, in the lab, they'd been able to cure brain cancer using immunotherapy. And so that just was kind of like, as you probably are well aware, once you start to chip away at these conspiracy theories, once it's like a, what's the, like a house of cards, once one of them comes away, yeah, exactly. then everything like falls away as well. And when you were, the difference says that you're, you know, you were going to work in a place where people were doing that every day. And, and it's not like, I think everybody, or, or if you're sort of prone to that thinking and, and, and creating that enemy, that common enemy, like this big pharma and blah, 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 and whatever you want to call them. And then misunderstanding, like how many people are involved yeah. in research worldwide at so many levels yeah. and everyone's trying to to do the right yeah. thing and to contribute to knowledge and to make a real difference that to sort of the minute you you know you you move into that conspiracy and somebody described it like this to me and I thought it was really funny because it you know ticked a lot of boxes that, that you know I was thinking about as well is to think that there's a global conspiracy and everyone is in on one thing shows that that person has never tried to project manage a team of 20 people <laughs> well so and I'm like absolutely spot on like how can you possibly think that something goes that deep and everyone is there trying to do the wrong thing for what reason for what purpose you know I mean I I get how people get to there and I a lot of the time it's fear like they're frightened they are they're genuinely frightened that there's something that's so complex that they can't get their head around it so to simplify it into having this body this one thing that, that explains it all and that's why this is happening is so much easier to hold on to because it's a simple answer and it's incorrect but it just does give them something to um, get through uncertainty because it's something that they can see this is why this is the reason and and I do get that and I understand it particularly right now when it is pretty frightening what's going on and people are upset and people are stressed about it and fed up and if you can explain all this away with one thing, then you can understand how that could be quite seductive, that type yeah. of thinking. Well, for me as well, yeah. So it's it's all of that. And it's the, the way it was, as I tried to understand why I even was down that rabbit hole and you start to learn about it, which you basically explained. So I'm not trying to mansplain it. I'm just explaining <laughs> the way that, that uh, I was, that I understood it was, Life is chaotic and complex. And as human beings, we're, this is really new to us that like social media, worldwide travel and interconnected global planet, we're used to living in our own little village. And so it's really, really difficult to, to, to live in that world because what we're used to is finding narratives. So we're used to finding easy narratives that explain our world. And as you mentioned, you're an atheist, me too. So we create God and we create all these structures that explain why it rains and why there's lightning and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? So now suddenly we have the internet in this global world and we're like, whoa, we can't understand this. So we need a narrative. And then unfortunately, these narratives come from, 
And I, so I fully bought into it, big pharma, the media is all owned, blah, 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 blah. And as I've chipped away at it, and one of my friends who I've mentioned a couple of times recently, Chris, he, similar to what you said, he said the exact same thing and I'll never forget it. I remember it was a conspiracy post and he's like, I've worked in government my whole life. You cannot get two teams to talk to each other that work in the same office. How in the hell would you make this a global conspiracy? And that's for me, I, I've done a joke about it recently. Um, and one of the kind of lines I do in the joke is, how would you get like people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, different religions, cultures that don't get on? So like China, Vietnam, Russia, America, the UK, everyone else. Scotland, England. <laughs> and they all agree on this one thing. They all agree together. We're going to create this global conspiracy. It's just, it, And so this is what I talked about on this last podcast I just did. When you start to realize how big a task it would be to pull this off, it becomes so unrealistic that it's just not possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. And I do, like I said, I understand how that can happen. Um, and sadly, I kind of have a rule of engagement. I encourage all people to sort of do this. But um, you'll disagree as being someone that was down that rabbit hole because clearly it worked for you, but you had to move to an institute that works in science. So that's <laughs> happened. Um, I tend to have certain rules. Like I'm, I won't spend time, you know, speaking to people who have questions, who have genuine questions and want answers. What I don't want to get into is, you know, the whole jacking off. I'm just asking questions. Well, no, you're not, because you're not listening to yeah. answers. You just want to, you want to go round in this magical merry-go-round and, and, you know, constantly change topic and not address Bro. when evidence is on the table. Oh my goodness. I, I... And I can't, it's such a brain drain. So I've reckoned, I mean, and at the start of the, you know, at the start of the pandemic, I mean, the last two years has been, I didn't ever think I was going to get someone layman's plain herd immunity to me and then go what is it your qualifications and again well actually it's immunology please tell me again Dave at the end of the bar with a pine how you know this better yeah. I didn't ever think that would happen in a way it's been nice to see people's science literacy grow and I think that's been a huge benefit you know people are starting to understand you know people are understanding more about immunology infectious disease public health all of these things that you particularly in a western um, environment infectious disease is something that we probably didn't have to deal with as much and did take for granted whereas out here there is far more of a respect for dealing with infectious disease and the importance of you know fighting things like SARS when it came out and bird flu and and all of these diseases that we didn't really see in the west to the same extent it was all out there so we could ignore it and we'd focus on cancer, diabetes, all of the diseases that are very at home to us. That that's, why, that's why our family are getting sick, et cetera. So it's been nice to, to see people's understanding of infectious disease grow a bit. But then on the flip side of that, having um, people who are engaging in conversation, but not for the right, they're not really doing it for any reason other than to... Um, sort of go into their whirlpool and 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 try and, and and drag you in and I have dis I've disengaged with a number of people because it's not a discussion that is ever going to be useful and it's never going to go anywhere and it's it's not fun for me it's mentally draining and they're not going they're not going to get anything from it for the most part so I've tended to focus more on speaking to people who genuinely just wanted some time with someone who 
had, did have a, a background in in that area, even though I'm not a COVID expert. You know, that is absolutely not what I am. I've never worked in COVID. Oh, crude or doing a lot of work in COVID, I haven't. But having that understanding of vaccination, immunology, how we fight infectious disease, breaking it down into simple bite-sized chunks that are understandable and trying to explain what we do know, what we don't know, and trying to be honest about what evidence is there and trying to explain risk analysis a little bit better because I think that's part of the problem, like understanding of risk. And and that has been a huge lot of thinking that has caused a lot of hesitancy. That and just lack of information and, and sadly misinformation on social media, which is obviously a huge issue right now. I guess all you can do or all I felt I could do is just take the time to speak to people where I can. And it's been, you know, it's a very small part of, you know, if anyone can, if anyone that's any background can do that, then, then I think it's helping, you know, not, not every GP or doctor that you can go into that, that's doing vaccinations all day is going to have the time to sit and, and explain and take the time. So if we can sort of intervene at the early, at the early stage when people are considering, like, should I get the vaccine? Should I not? And just answering questions and explaining and trying to get across the power of consensus and the amount of money and research and collaboration and scientific expertise that's gone into where we are now, which is two months, two years into a pandemic, where we have almost 10 vaccines, where we have drugs coming through, where we have an incredible understanding, albeit we now have variants appearing. Um, but I, I, it's incredible to look at how fast science has gone. It truly is. It's unbelievable. And it must be, and I know it must be though so disheartening to see science has it. This is just incredible. We should be celebrating that the fact that we've got to this pinnacle of science. We've got to this scientific point where we can get these vaccines out. Like if we didn't, when I think back to two years ago, and even in Vietnam back in May, we had almost zero percent of the population vaccinated. Two years ago, when this first arrived we had zero vaccines we had zero defense and if we still didn't have any vaccines this is the thing that gets me if we still had if we were still at the point where we're waiting for them which in a normal timeline we would still be waiting on them oh my goodness how bad would it be it's not even i mean it doesn't even bear thinking about really and yeah, actually, it's terrifying. I mean, if you look what happened, you know, at the start of the pandemic in China, but then in Italy, you know, Italy, a country where, um, you know, it starts to get close to like for Europeans like us and, and yet yeah, the UK was doing nothing, but people in Italy were dying. I mean, I've got family that in law lives in Italy and she was, they were one of the first to go into lockdown and she talked about deaths and, you know, the number of deaths and, you know, these doctors making decisions that doctors should never, ever have to make about you know how do we allocate what we've got in terms of resources and and who do we choose to save and like you see imagine like now that it's you know it's it went it was worldwide after that and then the vaccine discovery pipeline really ramped up and the collaboration globally was insane that without that where would we be right now and I actually just until you said that I was like I hadn't really (laughs) 
thought about that and actually it really has me almost reaching for the whiskey. It's terrifying, it's right? Like we would be completely terrifying. defenseless. Like terrifying. life has been, let's be honest, really difficult for the past two years for everyone involved, apart from Jeff Bezos, he's doing okay. He's gone to space and everything. But for everyone else, they're struggling like hell, mentally, physically, financially, all of this. Stuff. So imagine how bad it would be if we didn't have this this defense shield. So look, without going into too much detail, for anyone who, who's listening, who's unsure or doesn't just doesn't understand, can you very quickly and easy, as easily as you can explain how these vaccines work, why we should trust them, you know, what, why are they, you know, they've come, the people, you know, people say, oh, they've come too quickly and all of this. Explain, explain yeah. them as basic as you can. I know that might be challenging. I can. Okay, let's, let's try and take this bit by bit. Yeah. The immune response is basically your inner army, right? And I use this analogy all the time. I hate to go to military analogies, but it just works <laughs> so well. Your, your immune response is your body's inner army to fight against invaders, right? That's as, that's as simple as it is. There's lots of cells. There's lots of different weapons there. But on a very, very basic level, that's what it does. Now, a vaccine is simply taking that immune response, taking it to a training camp, teaching it what the enemy looks like, training it to kill the enemy, and handing it the best ammunition, right? That's effectively what it is. So that when you see that disease, you are ready. So when I speak to people who are, you know, but, you know, I trust my immune oh, system, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Your immune system's not perfect, right? It's an incredible part of kit of your body is amazing it is not perfect it's far from perfect and the analogy i like to use is if you were going into a war zone would you rather go in as a rookie or would you rather go in as an elite force right send in the elites don't send in the rookies do the same with your immune response so that's that's what vaccines do now coming back to the development of the vaccines which has been incredible what i would like to say is that the vaccine development has been heavily expedited. And what we mean by that is a lot of these normal roadblocks that are put in the way of a clinical trial aren't there to the same extent. Now, that doesn't mean safety has been compromised. If you imagine to put together a clinical trial, it is a lot of work and a lot of this money quickly, and takes a lot of time. I, know, I yeah? know what a clinical trial is, as I said, because I worked in the, the, the institute. Yeah. I think some people actually, and I didn't know what a clinical trial was before I worked there. So just explain what is a clinical trial. Okay, so a clinical trial, um, when it's well designed, is when we have a new drug or a new intervention. It doesn't have to be a drug. It could be a diagnostic test. It could be a vaccine. It could be a number of things. So you take that new thing, whether it's a drug or a vaccine, and you test it in people against what we call a placebo, which is basically an inert, non-reactive... Like a sugar syrup or something, fluid. right? <laughs> yeah. So with a vaccine, it would be whatever the buffer is for the vaccine normally would be, you know, used as the, as the placebo. So when you're injected, you do not know whether you're getting the placebo or the actual vaccine, right? So that's a placebo-controlled trial. Those are the most controlled versions of it. And... They call it randomized because the patient, it's not like they deliberately choose a patient to take either one or the other. It's totally random. And when it's double blind, it means that neither the person giving it nor the person receiving it knows what that is in the bio. So it makes it really unbiased, right? And we only know at the end 
when we unblind all the numbers and see who got what, right? So it's a really controlled way of doing it. And clinical trials go through different processes. So at the start, there's, well, actually you get preclinical, which is often, you know, animal studies, cell-based studies, et cetera, before it even gets into humans. Um, when we get to phase one, and you mentioned phase one earlier, clinical trials phase one, the, the whole point of a phase one trial is to look at safety. It doesn't look at whether that's effective. It just looks to see, you know, on a number of different doses, whether this is safe. So phase one still happens. Phase two, when you start to enroll people, you still look at safety, but you're also looking at, is this effective, right? Are we seeing antibodies produced? And we hear a lot about, you know, antibodies after you have a vaccine, which is one measure of the immune response. It's not total one, so it doesn't tell the whole story, but it's, it's one indicator and it's very easy to measure because it's in your blood. So they would test antibody levels and then they would look at, in that trial, the number of people who eventually got COVID-19 and who didn't get COVID-19, how that looks. Phase two is quite a small number. Phase three is still looking at, always looking at safety. That doesn't change throughout the trials. They still look at safety data. But with a larger number of people, you can start to see rarer effects. So effects that are slightly less likely to pop up in a smaller population. And efficacy, effectiveness on a bigger level, right? And a bigger, more people, more data. And often it will be in different hospitals, not just one hospital. And many of these trials have happened across a number of countries as well. Now, with COVID-19, the timeline to get to phase one, now that whole preclinical phase, that takes a long time. And you will know that working in that, old, in that other institute takes a long, long time. The good thing about COVID-19 vaccines are that they were already building on the back of other previous vaccines that had been tested. Okay, so it wasn't entirely brand new they were building on some information that they already coronavirus had. They also are not a new yeah. disease right they're not a new yep. disease you know we followed the common cold and all of these things so and we had SARS before so there was development of vaccines towards SARS they were never rolled out because SARS then disappeared and became less important so the money dries up in research when the outcome is not so important right so but that technology was there so that was already being built on. Then you have something that's affecting the whole world, which means there's a lot of funding getting pushed behind it. Okay, so we can set it up quicker. There's also a lot of people getting COVID. So it's far easier to test efficacy when there's a lot of the disease around as well. Okay, and lots of people were willing to enroll. So all of that was sped up. Lots of hospitals wanted to be involved. Lots of people wanted to be involved. So all of those things that take a long time are shortened. And then you've got the ethical approval system, which means that when these ethical approvals are going in, they're going to the top of the pile, right? So you need to have these big meetings with jobs still happens. None of that changed. Yeah. Those actually parts didn't much Did they move to the but front of the of, queue? Is that, that was it? All of the crappy parts in between yeah. were sped up. Now, and then they also overlap some aspects of the trial, which was still done in a very, very safe manner. So when people say they were rushed, I say, no, they weren't. They were expedited. So you imagine an ambulance firing down a street where all of everyone's moved out the way and how quick that happens. 
in you know the UK and then you try one. and do it in a track that's a great analogy that's a great one right so it's it's a bit like that and um, and that's kind of and that's what happened and we've now had billions of people vaccinated worldwide billions safely so for people still saying you know I don't want to be a lab rat mm. or flow I, I you know I, I don't trust it like well you're the control group yeah right you're effectively the control group and you're losing I wouldn't <laughs> recommend. I wouldn't recommend being the control group, particularly as this is. I mean, even in Vietnam, we've been doing so tremendously yeah. well, and then Delta hit yep. the the variant, obviously, that then spread worldwide because it was more transmissible. And it's now the cases have run up again yeah. in Vietnam. But the good thing now is that you know the majority of us are vaccinated, and the hospitals aren't bursting at the seams as they were a couple of months ago which was the real concern. Mm. And that's why we locked down. And that's why to protect a healthcare system that, you know, needs help. And not just because of COVID, we don't want beds filling up with people and then other diseases and other conditions are then becoming, you know, collateral damage because people can't get beds. It's the lockdown is to protect the healthcare system. Yeah. And now that we're vaccinated, that's less of a concern. Hopefully, will remain that way. Listening to that, how do you not get fucking angry with like people that don't understand that? Like, I'm listening to you, and I'm like, I understood that process you described like vaguely because I've I've worked in that industry a little bit, and it made total sense to me. The reason I asked you to clarify some of it is because I think most people probably wouldn't understand even at the most basic description mm. what is a clinical trial. So. Does that not just infuriate you? And I use this as a joke on stage when you have someone like a restaurant manager posting online, like, oh, I want to wait for the vaccines. Cause, and the joke I make is imagine that you, let's use you as an example. Imagine Dr. Lee Jones walked into the restaurant and walked into the kitchen and was like, you're not cooking that right. I watched a YouTube video and it said that you should do it differently. Like they would be like, get the fuck out of my restaurant. But yeah. you have to do that. I mean, that. to be honest, yeah, I get pissed off sometimes. Yeah. You know, we're all human, but I mean, there's been, it's probably the, it's not the first time, but it's, it's been such a rare thing that, you know, you get questions on these things by people and um, because they've maybe, you know, done a Google search or whatever. But I mean, I, I don't mind questions, but yeah, that sort of questioning without really having an interest in what you have to say is that is the really annoying one, like you mentioned. But there's, you know, there's, there's jobs and livelihoods and careers who've continually had this since they started. Like how many teachers I'm sure that are on this call listening, right? Every parent I'm sure will have an opinion <laughs> on how you teach. I've not been used to that. Yeah. Like scientists haven't been used to that in the same way as someone going, well, you know, that won't work because X, Y, and Z. We've not really had that. So it's kind of not to the same extent anyway on an everyday basis. You know, or people stand inside of a football pitch shouting at the coach when they have mm. no clue about what they're talking about. And then um, I actually posted to see a quote from Mo yeah. the Mo Salah one, but you posted it. <laughs> it, was, it was so good of him saying, you know, I don't expect people to, or I'm paraphrasing, but I don't expect people in the street to talk to me about how to pass a football, whatever. Although, do you know what, mate, if you went down, like, down to the pub or went to the side of the park people will yeah. but yeah it's, it's it's about and it's not it shouldn't be blind trust in people and you know you're an expert so you must know better but at least 
listen to what someone's saying when they come from a slightly different level of expertise and, and if they're putting evidence to you and trying to explain something, then rather than thinking you must be a freedom, that you're a freedom fighter and that you know better and you've got the new truth, like maybe you're just wrong. But no one, no I mean, one will admit they're wrong these days. That's definitely part <laughs> no. of the problem. Have you? When was the last time you ever met anyone that was like, oh, yeah, no, sorry, I was wrong on that? Oh, I'm going to admit I'm wrong here. So maybe this would inspire <laughs> some people to say wrong. At the start of the pandemic, when everyone was talking about mask wearing, I was like, honestly, it's probably one of the least effective interventions. That's because there wasn't a lot of good, strong data on mask wearing, ironically. Wow, there was not. Right, okay. Uh, and since, since the pandemic's gone on and, you know, there's more, there's much better evidence, there's been really good trials done and that someone took the time to really um, have a go at me about the precautionary principle and how even if it was a tiny, tiny effect yeah. that they had, it's not damaging. So why not? And even if it's just an image and an awareness of people seeing people wearing masks and thinking, oh, we're not in normal times mm. right now. We should be more yeah. careful. And is that yeah. an indicator to social distance? So, and, and that's where social science has been really important in the pandemic. And I'm coming from a wet lab, biological science background. And I find the social science aspects of it now maybe even more interesting and so important because if you ignore people and behavior and reason for behavior, you've lost. It doesn't matter how good the intervention you've got is whether it's a drug or a vaccine if you don't look at the social science aspect you're losing so I, I just yeah I, I found that really interesting I've learned a lot since the start of the pandemic so yes I was wrong about masquerading <laughs> so let's put that out there so yes admit you're wrong <laughs> can you just clarify for me as well what do you mean by the social science part of it I mean, if you don't go out and um, do interviews, um, community work to find out maybe why people are hesitant. So say, let's take vaccine hesitancy as an example, right? And we actually have a PhD student at Oak Crew working on this, but before COVID, and now she's got a large component of COVID in that work. If there is a community that is particularly vaccine hesitant, hesitant right? How can you even begin to come up with an intervention or figure out what to do when you don't know why it is? Now, say you assumed, for example, that the reason that people aren't getting vaccinated is because they have received anti-vax messages on social media. So say you assume that and you put all your money into a campaign that's just combating misinformation on local Facebook groups and still the vaccine uptake does not go up. Then you go out and speak to the community. And I'm saying this because it's an example that I actually heard that say that community is quite remote. And you go out to that community and you say, why are you not getting vaccinated? And why are your kids not getting vaccinated? And they say, well, to get to the vaccine clinic, I need to drive for almost a day. So it means that I can't work that day. And when I drive to the vaccine station, it's next door to a police station. And I do not have, have my bike licensed. So I'm worried that if I go there, then they're going to take my bike away and I'm not going to be able to go home. Right. So this is what I mean. Like if you 
assume something is the reason, but you don't actually go out and speak to people, then you could be way off the mark and you're completely missing the point. So I think that's, and, and everywhere is different. You can't just say, you know, one country, say there's vaccine hesitancy and you assume it's the same reason somewhere else. It's, it's not, it's not like that. And every place is different. So I think you really need to put in the effort and it takes a lot of work. Like social science research, just hearing from my colleagues who do it, like that's not my area. I know almost, knew almost nothing about it before moving to Okru and listening to some incredible seminars and stuff. And it takes a lot of time, you know, and it's something that really can't be underestimated. And I think some of the best rollouts have been in places where they've considered the local community and they've listened. They've tried to figure out how to make things better before they go ahead and just assume. And that's just pure arrogance. Like in, in science, we go out and we get evidence before we do something. And why would that be any different? when you're expecting that people are going to take something new and you haven't gone out and asked. And that's where public campaigns are really important, where public health messaging is important, but there's multiple levels to it. And it's, you know, it's really, really, mm. really vital, you know, in some communities and, and um, say, sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, and trying to get um, local um, opinion leaders on board. Like if, if, the leader of the yeah, church this, yeah. is very important in that in that community. Yeah. Speak to them and get them on board and and help get them, you know, to help you get that message out. And, you know, things like this are so important and they shouldn't be underestimated. And yes, yeah, it's, it's something that yeah, it's a growing interest. Well, one for of the sure. things I was going to say earlier, but it's relevant to what you're talking about now. And I think this is probably especially relevant to what you were describing before what your your role is. So I remember when I worked at the Institute, the, prof the director there, Professor Graham Legros, who obviously an unbelievable man, one of the things that he was really trying to instill in the PhD students and even the, the, the established scientists was their communication skills. So this was way back. So I, I worked there like 2014, 15. And even then he was identifying that there was this massive gap in science and in and you probably recognize and it makes sense right that you're in the lab you're doing your research you you understand the minutia of the the mitochondria and the cells and, the, and the, all of this but then taking that information and explaining it to the general public in a way that they can understand um he identified back then was a massive gap and he wanted his students to become better at speaking at conferences at taking their data and being able to make it more understandable for the media, for the social media, for the for the public understanding. And do you think so? That then I guess ties into what you're des describing right now. So is that? And I'm not saying the cause of the problem of the, the the conspiracy theories and things like that, but is that part of something that's been missing that has then led to conspiracy theories because people can then jump in and fill that gap because for years science wasn't explaining itself properly. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's obviously it's multifactorial, but I definitely think that's one of the things that where there's a gap in knowledge, someone and scientific communication is really hard. And I didn't get any training on it. Like you did sports science. Did you get any training <laughs> no, on scientific this communications? Is what he was, I didn't. Like, that's why he was a, a genius, an amazing man, because he was trying to he was trying to explain that yeah. to his students that you need to get better at explaining your science. Or Yeah, and that's one of the one of the things that Okri like 
and we have a communications team. So they're obviously there supporting that um, aspect. One of the biggest things that I spend my time doing with the PhD students is scientific communication. So how do you present science? And we have this amazing competition Mm. called Three Minute Thesis. And the PhD students have three minutes to explain their, their project, which is very complicated. And we do it as part of a public engagement exercise with local school children. So we get um, students from STEM specialist schools. So, you know, they have, they have an interest in science already. And the key is for those students to stand up there, the PhD students, for three minutes and get these messages across. And the, the high school students are part of the voting as well. And it's, it's an incredible event. And the amount of time and effort you know, our PhD students go into trying to figure out analogies and stories and using metaphors and anything that can bring to life a topic that is really, really technical. And it's and it's a really important skill for them to learn, you know, particularly like clinicians who are speaking to, to patients on a daily basis, but also the amount of effort that now goes into all of the projects at Oak Crew of communicating with local community, with school children, with mothers, you know, with farmers. So one of the things we work on is antimicrobial resistance, for example. So speaking to farmers and pharmacists about antibiotic use, you know, so it's something that I think is understood better now. And if you look at grant applications now for, you know, bodies like the Wellcome Trust in the UK, they're asking, how do you oh, communicate great. with the public about your work? How do you engage with policymakers to make you change? You know, so it's it's not as simple as, you know, write down science, tell us about your clinical trial, where's your ethical approvals? Okay, here's the money, off you go. It's, no, but how do you make that mm. impactful? Like, it's always about impact. Like, how are you going to make this make a difference? And and I think that's that's the way almost all funding bodies certainly that we work with have gone, and it's important. And and I think that's that's feeding back as well into this loop of you need to train your scientists how to engage with the public, how to explain their science, how to write <laughs> yeah, for non scientific right, yeah. audiences. Like your analogy right in the beginning about armies is, and things like that—that's kind of like the perfect. Because people aren't going to understand if you're like, well, you know, if we take the T-cell from here and then we put it in there and then you've lost exactly. them. As soon as you say T-cell, yeah. you've lost me as well, you know. It, it, so for your analogy about an ambulance. Eh. You're so wrong. You're so wrong. <laughs> your analogy about like an ambulance going down the street is uh, is perfect. But I have a challenge for you, okay? And for Okru, instead of doing a three-minute presentation, you're going to get it into a 15-second TikTok video. Oh God, yeah. Uh, TikTok is the one uh, one of the platforms I not I, I haven't joined. I'm a big Twitter fiend. I think Twitter for technical right. science is great. And you can lots of scientists are actually really Twitter savvy and it's great because you can follow them and, and it's it's just science geek fest. It's amazing. TikTok has just yeah. been that one step too far for me as generation. Well, I started the TikTok. <laughs> But it ends a really important. And you got to do your science. Fifteen seconds, bang! I started one God, recently for seven million up. bikes, but I, I gave up oh, on no. it because what I was just doing, I was repurposing content I already had. I wasn't like making like TikTok videos, and ugh, it was just too much work and stuff. Yeah. But look, this yeah. 
being stuck. But I think it's important, and I think you know, younger younger scientists and doctors there, probably, will be on yeah. this, and and they're you know, I think it's really important to do it because if it's if it's one of the the platforms that's reaching you know younger people, and that's what they're using, then we should be using it. But yeah, from my own perspective, still struggling my way yeah. through Facebook and Twitter, or probably about as far as I'll go, and I'll let that I'll leave that gauntlet to to somebody else, pass on the baton to someone younger. And, and, you know, well, it is, yeah, it is another important <laughs> channel because I actually make a podcast for a pharmaceutical company. Oh, sorry, they're not. They, they do marketing with pharmaceutical companies. And they were talking, we were talking about in the last podcast episode about using TikTok as a channel. And there is apparently a dentist who uses TikTok to show people, patients, how to floss, floss their teeth and things like this. So clinicians there are starting to, to use that platform. Well, look, I know we've talked for so long, which I didn't expect anything less than from two Scottish people, but there, there's so, so much I want to talk about. I don't think I've ever had a repeat guest on, but I might want to see if you come back on so we can talk even more because I'd love to explore more about the conspiracy stuff, but also like how we can break that down because obviously I'm quite, quite well versed on that and obviously you are as well. So I cannot thank you enough for everything you do on the research side of it for coming on the show. I really do appreciate I do have one last question because it's very relevant. So just today, we had a friend who we found out had tested positive for COVID. And even then, it, you never really know if it's true or not because a lot of these home tests especially are, even the PCR tests seem to fluctuate like between positive and negative sometimes. But anyway, my question is, I was shocked when they told me that their doctor suggested ivermectin as a treatment now i i've not really i've not researched ivermectin really? at all i've seen little bits here and there i can see your face can you explain to me even i really don't know much about it i know so being a conspiracy theorist and then a reformed conspiracy theorist i can see the media tactics of they were like oh it's a horse dewormer when that, I don't think that's entirely true. And and there was people being like, oh, it's never been trialed clinically, which I don't think is also true. It has been trialed. So I think sometimes the media goes too far in the other direction. And I could see what they're trying to do. You're trying to make it be like, if you believe in ivermectin, you're yeah. a ridiculous flat earther who believes in this horse dewormer. When I, I didn't need to do much research, I didn't do any research to be like, oh, no, it's it's actually like a, it's a real thing. It's a, a para parasitic worms. Is that what it is, folks? So it's a real treatment. Yeah, That's it's it, yeah. Um, so, it can be used yeah, in humans. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not technically I mean, it's, like these crazy people are going out and taking yeah, a horse sea warmer, but it doesn't mean it's effective for COVID. So just your face kind of cringed there, obviously, when I said about, I, literally this happened today. My, and my friend was like, oh, well, the doctor gave me medicines. And I was like, well, what did they give you? Because obviously we know in Vietnam, they love to just pop you full of antibiotics, which she was given antibiotics for COVID as well, which even as a layman, didn't seem to make much sense to me. Just quickly, my first day in Vietnam, my wife cut her toe quite badly, like the top of her toe. And we went to the pharmacy to get it cleaned up and he wanted to give her antibiotics. And I was like, why, why are you giving antibiotics for a cut toe? Yeah. If it gets infected, then yeah, sure, we'll get antibiotics. But it's just, it's just yeah. anyway, going back to the ivermectin question, can you explain a little bit about that then? So ivermectin is an amazing antiparasitic drug. 
It's great. And it has been used in humans. It's not just a horse dewormer. Obviously used at very different concentrations. And I think the whole push about calling it a horse dewormer was a lot of concern about um, people perhaps trying to get a hold of it from veterinary stores because it's more easily available or from agricultural stores, should I say, that it's easy to get a hold of um, in that preparation. And so I think the whole idea of sort of putting fear into people a little bit to say, well, you know, don't take horse dewormer. Of course you shouldn't. And in terms of efficacy against COVID-19, there have been a number of trials and there is no evidence that it is in any way effective against COVID-19 infection. Now, there is, well, because it's... With lots of repurposed drugs, and that's what's been happening since the start of the pandemic, is that we're repurposing drugs for use in COVID-19 treatment. I and mean, that's the recovery trial at Oxford has tested a number of drugs in this huge clinical trial um, to, to see if there's anything that will be of use. Dexamethasone is one that's being used in severely ill patients, um, common cheap steroids. So there is no conspiracy against, you know, just wanting expensive drugs. Cheap dexamethasone is now one of the standards of care in severe uh, COVID. But coming back to ivermectin, there were some initial studies very early on in cells in a dish that showed that at high concentrations, it could stop or limit viral replication. So we're not cells in a dish and a lot of very good cells in a dish treatments do not come through into um, effectiveness in a full human. And that's kind of where that happened. And the same thing happened with hydroxychloroquine as well, which you remember at the start of the pandemic was the one that was, you know, the first. There was some guy, I can't remember, some big mouth guy just kept going on about it. I can't remember his name now. but uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't can't remember. Like, he seemed to disappear. Yeah, a bit orange. Um, Um, Anyway, um, but the frustrating thing is that there was still really good trials looking at it as a preventative and is still ongoing. It's called the Kopkov trial and that's a, it's an Oxford trial that's been run by the Thailand unit. And, and we wait for data on that. I mean, if it came out that it was quite good at preventing COVID, um, then, you know, it might be useful, particularly in healthcare workers, which is where it's been trialed. But anyway, that's, you know, the actual, as, an, as, as a treatment, hydroxychloroquine was probably mm. one of the widest tested drugs since the start of the pandemic and did not show any effect in treating COVID-19. Right. So we put that to bed and then ivermectin comes along and it's quite a similar story. You know, it looked positive in cells in a dish and there were some early, pretty <laughs> poorly run trials, some of which borderline and not mm. even borderline, but fraudulent and have been withdrawn since that said it had this amazing effect, which was borne out to be nonsense and was poor data. But by then the damage is done and you have this huge um, hype wave that then spread, but there's been a lot of trials looking at it and it's it's not been shown to be effective. And it's kind of, and again, there's this trial looking at, you know, would it be useful in very early stage treatment? And that's, again, one of the, the Oxford teams are looking at that as well. And there's no data on that yet. So to still hear this being pushed, I mean, in essence, if it's the correct dosage and, you know, the doctor, I'm sure, is, is you know, being being sensible on that front and, and giving a dosage that would be befitting another parasitic disease, for example, then it's it's unlikely to do you any harm. But you shouldn't really be taking any drugs where there's no yeah. efficacy data. It's just to me that's that's insane. And yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah, sad. Just today, so here, 
Yeah, I was like, oh my god. Uh, so yeah. just like a uh, question, quick question, and a follow up. What just gets me as well is <laughs> why would people think that you and the global community as healthcare professionals would not want would want to suppress these drugs? Why would they be hiding hydrochloroquine or however you say it, ivermectin? It just it uh, none of it makes any sense to me. Again, it's about, you know, if you create if you create this simple common enemy, then it means that you can sort of justify in your own mind or or or, or compartmentalize in your own mind everything that you think about COVID being maybe, you know, overemphasized or you know, trying to control us through this or all of these things you can quite mm-hmm. easily put under that one heading of there's a baddie, you know. So I, I think and, and I hate to oversimplify it and in a way maybe patronise some people that are listening. I'm not, and I don't want to do that. I, I do un- I do understand where that where that comes from. But just always remember to look at the evidence. Always remember to look at the data. Be your own critical assessor when you're given something. If it's a YouTube video, don't waste your time. You know, who's, who's giving this information to you? How trustworthy are they? Do they have a background in the area? Are they using overly emotive language? In that case, it's a huge red flag. Um, don't buy into that. Um, you know, just look for those. Look for those flags. Are they massively flying in the face of consensus? Right, and consensus is 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 powerful because it's not that everybody's in on this, and it's mm. so many different scientists have looked at the evidence and come to the same conclusion. And um, that's powerful. And people have done different experiments in slightly different ways or different studies and come to the same conclusion that's consensus it's not believing one person over others it's believing burden of evidence that huge amount of evidence then if you're cherry picking one or two contrarian people who may have different ideas you know they may you know there has been situations in the past where you know science moved but science moves with evidence it doesn't move because someone's standing there <laughs> shouting. <laughs> It moves you, right? It's and and if you're going to come to the table disagreement, that's what science is about. Come to the table with a disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> come with evidence. Don't come. To, don't come to the table with he can't be trusted because he's big farm or he's you know makes Bill Gates is trying to control the world. Whatever it is, come with evidence. Come with something that is going to turn that ship around and, and that's how science you know consensus does sometimes turn around it turns around by more evidence and more experts finding that not someone sitting on google and shouting you know that's that's not where we're at and that's not where we should be so just listen listen to look at the burden of evidence ask for the evidence ask for data you know listen to people that are you know experts in the area and and ask the questions you want to ask, but don't, you know, dismiss them when when what they hear, what they see isn't what your cherry picked expert or your Google search or your Facebook friend said. You know, just be your own critical analyst. That's you know, is is all I kind of ask. Think about it. Think about it and ask for data and evidence all uh-huh. the time. <laughs> I literally Can't like couldn't on. agree with you hundred percent more. I'm just listening to you. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the back of my mind, I'm like, I literally, if if anyone is listening who is of that persuasion, 
I already know what they're saying because I used to be like that. And they're like, yeah, no, they're not. They're, that, those, those people are being silenced. You know, they're, they're, not, they're, they're all in the back pocket of Big Pharma or the Rothschilds. Like, I, I already, because I've been there. And so we can finish. Yeah, but that's a really interesting perspective to come from. And, and actually, like Richard and I have spoken about this my, my other half. And he says people should speak to conspiracy theorists that have come out the other end because the insight into sort of psychology of it and, and how you got there and, and what changed your mind. And, and I think that's all really interesting. But coming on to the yeah, silence. I saw your tweet today. I saw your tweet today. It was a, it was a good one. <laughs> Run up to them. Everybody's like, um, yeah, you know, my my experiments are being silenced. I'm like, how do you know if they're being silenced? Yeah. How do you know who they are? I, I don't I don't get that. You know, it's yeah. the, the silence the, thing. But, I've come to be aware, you know, as you probably know, the mental gymnastics that you have to take to 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 keep your position is uh, is exhausting. But you don't realize that at the time. So I remember when I was deep down the rabbit hole and po- I didn't post very much, thankfully, on my, my own Facebook, but I had another Facebook page that I used. And people would shoot me down at the time or one or two people and I'd be like, ah, they don't know, they're sheeple, like blah, 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 all this stuff. So like, anyway, that's what I'm saying. We could do a whole nother episode and, and with, uh, you know, with Riz as well, you mentioned as well, we have a similar outlook. The whole psychology of it is is fascinating. So that's what I'm saying. As you're you're like cheerleading on there, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, it's I feel bad because it's almost banging your head against a brick wall. Because for someone like me or anyone who agrees with you, we're like, yeah. And for someone who doesn't agree, they're like, that's that's when I come back to the the hesitancy aspect. I'm not, you know, I, I I'm not gonna argue with with people if you know if that's how you know if that's genuinely what what they believe and it, and it is a belief by then it's a belief structure and I'm not going to argue a belief structure because evidence is pointless right so I I I don't want I don't want to spend my time there's there's advocacy is really useful where it can have an impact and it's certainly not it's certainly not there I want to speak to people who genuinely like have some questions mm. that somebody just hasn't answered in a simple way that's what I want to do. I don't. I don't want to argue with someone about about Bill Gates and and Anthony Fauci and and you know all of these names. And I don't want to mm. be there. I want to talk to people about science and, and vaccines and the immune response and and staying yeah. safe and public health. I wanted to ask you much more about, about that. I don't want to kind of got sidetracked. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. We need to do another episode <laughs> talking about Anthony Fauci. You know he's a beagle killer, right? You've heard this one? He's the beagle killer. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, my God. I'll tell you about that later. We'll talk about that on the next episode. Yeah, he's an evil animal killer as well. This is how I, because I still see some of this stuff and it's crazy. So, listen, I won't take up any more of your time. I honestly can't thank you enough. I've been so looking forward to this and it's not disappointing. Before we go, tell people where can they find more of your work? Where can they follow you? How can they learn more? What, What should people do from this? And we will put links in the notes that you send me for anything you say so people can click the links. I can send, yeah, I can send notes. Um, again, I'm not working on COVID, but there's a lot of COVID work going on at Okru, so you can follow okru.org. That's O-U-C-R-U.org. Um, you can follow, please follow the WHO, please follow the CDC, please follow the British Society for Immunology. They have some amazing educational resources and public engagement resources to break down science into bite-sized chunks. 
that can be understood. And obviously immunology is my first love. So I would strongly recommend you go there. There's an amazing Facebook group and Twitter page called Science Up First, which is a Canadian company. Also follow the Health Feedback Initiative. They're doing a lot of work with busting misinformation on social media. They take the main news stories and trends that are coming around and they ask scientists to um, comment on them and they write fact-checking pieces. So they're another amazing resource. So yeah, all of those I can I can send to you as well as, you know, if, if you're a mother, expectant mother, there's there's um, the Royal College of Obstetricians, gynecologists in the UK. There's There's amazing places to get lots of information about the specific things that you're concerned about. And if anyone has any further information or any further questions on specific aspects, I can point them in the direction of the right websites to go to. But there's just so many amazing websites out, out there now about science. Follow the main universities. You know, all of these things are, are well worth a follow. Just always question a I was going to say, that I saw this amazing YouTube video, you know, and like this guy was really convincing. And so I don't know about all of that technical stuff that you just said, this guy on YouTube was like pretty good man talks the good game talks the good game yeah I'll send you all of those I'll send you all of those links and also a little slide I put together about doing awesome. your own fact checking check if you're listening really check out the notes below you and uh, you'll be able to click all of those links thank you so much Dr. Lee Jones it has been amazing um, go and get your dinner now thank you for giving us your time and I will talk to you soon here's Neil been a pleasure see you later catch you soon bye hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data these days it is vital that you keep your data safe NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. 
The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to the show. Cheers.